Good morning, my name is Kyle, and it's, um, it really is wonderful to worship the living God with you, and it's an encouragement to me, and you are a witness to me of the reality of the gospel, uh, this community born out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so I'm grateful for that. I also want uh, you to know, if you're just joining us, that we are in the midst of a series looking at our core convictions as a a church, the convictions that animate us, and we've been looking at this conviction that God is on a mission. We've been looking at how that plays out in discipleship and discipling, and now we're going to look at um, really how it plays out in our our public witness and encounter with uh, this place and our identity here as, um, as I would say, missionaries in a secular age, missionaries to the West and to the late modern secular world in which we find ourselves. Let me pray for us. And now, God, I ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, and that we would see Jesus, who is our strength and our Redeemer. It's in his name that I do pray. Amen. Well, I came here about 10 years ago, and when I came here, I came here with a fundamental commitment, and that commitment was to create a ministry culture in which we would be a community, and our services and all of our kind of meetings and events, we would be a community where we felt like we could invite and bring along uh, not um, not just our believing friends, not just our unbelieving friends, but even those friends who find Christianity absolutely implausible. The people that find Christianity to be absolutely and completely implausible. And the reason why I was committed to that and have been committed to that is really because of a man named Leslie Newbigin. Some of you have heard of Leslie Newbegin, some of you haven't. Uh, it's a name that I think you should know. Leslie Newbegin was born in 1909 in Newcastle. Some of you know Newcastle because of the soccer club. Some of you know Newcastle because of the beer. Uh, I know Newcastle because it was an hour away from Durham where I studied. Newbegin was born into a family, a Christian family, but he soon rejected the faith. Uh, but when he was at Cambridge studying as an undergraduate, he came across a Christian community and he was attracted to that Christian community because they were asking and they weren't afraid to ask serious questions about life and the faith. It was through being brought into that community that he eventually became a Christian himself. And one of the things that he really appreciated was the way that they talked about vocation as public witness and its importance for the life of the world. And so he was absolutely surprised when he felt a call to Christian ministry. Uh, He ended up training for Christian ministry, and then he and his wife, in 1936, set sail from England to India. They ministered as foreign missionaries in that context um, for nearly 40 years. It wasn't until 1974 that Leslie Newbigin returned. And when they returned, they decided, this is such a big transition that we need to take a two-month trip. So they went the long route. They went through Delhi and Lahore and 
Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran and then Turkey. And then they came to Cappadocia. And Leslie Newbegin had this really life-altering experience in Cappadocia. You see, every place that they had come to before Cappadocia, they had found a community of believers to worship with. In every place. Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, no matter where they were and through India, they always found a community of believers to worship with, but they didn't, and they had to worship by themselves when they got to Cappadocia. Now, for some of you, you're saying, well, why is that a big deal? You need to understand that in the first three centuries of the church, Cappadocia was one of the, if not the, theological center of Christianity. That's why we have these church fathers, these giant theologians called the Cappadocian fathers, because they came from Cappadocia. But in 1974, when Leslie Newbegin went traveling through there, the Christian witness had all but disappeared. And he realized at that moment how a place with such a strong Christian witness could have it evaporate. A few years later, he was at a... Um, like a missionary kind of conference, and there was kind of a debate about how to do foreign missions and, and, and reaching people in the, um, in the kind of Pacific Islands. And this guy stood up in, in the midst of this debate, and he, he made a comment, and then he sat down next to Leslie Newbegin, and this is the second experience that really, really struck him. The guy said under his breath, you know, of course we're debating about this, but the real question is, the number one question is, can the West be converted? And Newbegin began to think about that question. There was a parish in Birmingham where he had moved back to, Birmingham, England. And uh, it was an urban parish, and he was retired, but nobody was there to take it, and so he took it. And he ministered there with another person, and they began going door-to-door, -door, ministering to people. And here's what he found. As he was ministering there, he found that the Hindus and the Muslims who had, who had moved to um, who had moved to Birmingham, they were inviting them into their homes and talking about religion and open to hearing about the gospel. But the Westerners were not at all. And more and more he began to realize that that question was actually the question. Can the West be converted? He later wrote in 1989, what we call the modern scientific, Western scientific worldview, the post-enlightenment cultural world, is the most powerful and pervasive ideology in the world today. Everywhere in the world, it penetrates and disrupts the ancient religious systems with, quote-unquote, the acids of modernity. The Christian gospel continues to find new victories among the non-Western, pre-modern cultures of the world. He's speaking of Southeast Asia, China, India, Africa, where Christianity has been exploding for years and years and years, decades. He says, but in the face of this modern Western culture, the church is everywhere in retreat. Can there be a more challenging frontier frontier for the church than this, can there be an effective missionary encounter with this culture, this powerful, pervasive, and confident culture? Can the West be converted? So what Newbegin realized in 19, the late 1980s, mid to late 1980s, some of us are just starting to realize today. 
And I came here with the, with the reality of it because this is who I read in seminary and this is what I expected when I got into, into ministry. That, that we are cross-cultural missionaries in a culture that is very, very... where Christianity is less and less plausible. And so many of us have started to realize this, right? Like the church is no longer the place where people go for milestone events like baptisms, weddings. I mean, weddings aren't done by pastors very much anymore. Did you know that? Uh, And they're not done in churches anymore very much. Funerals. See, the church is kind of losing its its, um, cultural respect. and, And there are like good reasons for that. Some of it's because we squandered our influence. And we abused it. Um, but it also means that, that biblical concepts, I think, today are less and less intelligible to people. I mean, basic concepts like sin and atonement and redemption and Jesus. Uh, and, and the biblical narrative in which these ideas, these concepts make sense is no longer really known. Okay? So let me give you an example, a humorous example. Uh, my wife was at uh, Peabody, which is where my daughter goes to school. Peabody's a, a charter school here in town. And she's there, and she's talking to uh, someone after school. And she's talking about that this gal is like, oh, your husband, he works at a church, right? What's he, what's he called? He's a, he, what are they, what's it, uh, uh, Moses? <laughs> like, the gal born and raised in Santa Barbara literally could not find the term pastor or minister in her vocabulary. That, that's the world in which we, we minister. We have to realize that. And as, as sooner we come to grips with that, the better off I think we are. And so the question is, how can we have a missionary encounter because this is what I want to try to convince you of. You are missionaries, every one of you, foreign missionaries, to the late modern Western secular world. How can we have a missionary encounter with this culture? Well, a couple models that are out there that don't really work. One is withdraw. We just retreat. Uh, things are changing, and so we just kind of huddle up, Right? And that's one of the ways. Uh, Another way in which uh, people kind of uh, say that we should do is we should assimilate. uh, Try to show that we're not really that distinct and that different. But of course, if you withdraw, you're not really having an encounter, right? So an example of this, like an extreme example, would be like the Amish, right? The Amish aren't trying to have a missionary encounter. Or you assimilate to where there's no distinction, and then you're not having really an encounter because there's no kind of difference, right? Or another way that kind of is both of these at once is to try to kind of like yell louder and regain the footing, right? To dominate. But that's actually both of those. You know why? Because one, it's a form of withdrawal, like come over, lob a bomb, run back, right? It's real safe. But the problem is, is one, no one hears you. And the second problem is you've assimilated because you've adopted the culture's understanding of power, right? Which which is actually goes back to, and sociologists have, uh, have studied this, and 
people do the history of thought. I mean, the, the issue basically is once we lost a narrative and purpose, right? And once we lost purpose, uh, Nietzsche was right. Everything becomes will to power. And in our world today, that's what it is. Ideas are really not what's so important. It's that my idea is on top of others. Right? We're not really concerned about ideas. And so when we try to dominate like that, we basically have capitulated. None of those are missionary encounters. So can we have a missionary encounter, and how do we have a missionary encounter? Well, I have really, really, really good news for you. Like, really good news. The church now in the West is really in the situation that is much similar, much more similar to the church to which the letters of the New Testament were being written. Like, much closer than, than we've ever seen in Christendom since Constantine. And so, if we want a model for how to engage our society, I think we can, we can actually rediscover the letters of the New Testament read through this lens and understood in this way. And I don't think there's any better book than the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written to a church that is marginalized and suffering. It's not, um, it's not systematic uh, governmental persecution yet. That's, uh, that's by the laws, but it is a persecution nonetheless. In fact, um, the letter opens in verse 6 by talking about how the people are going to be grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 19, it says they'll endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. It mentions that they're going to be spoken against, chapter 2, verse 12. Slandered and reviled, chapter 3, verse 16. Maligned, chapter 4, verse 4. Insulted, verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. In fact, the word suffer or suffering, uh, or derivative of that, occurs 16 times in this letter. Just to give you a sense, I did a little, like, I did a little computer math as a, as a geek, right? That's 10 times more per word than any other letter in the New Testament. Right? Uh, this letter is talking about uh, the, how the people of God are suffering. They're marginalized. And, and, and the, the dominance, the, the understanding, the self-understanding that Peter calls um, these Christians to take is he says that they're supposed to understand themselves as exiles. Exiles. Chapter 1, verse 1, he writes and he addresses them as elect exiles. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says they are sojourners and exiles. In chapter 1, verse 17, he speaks of the time of their exile. So he views that the time in which they live is a time of exile. Now, exile goes back to the Old Testament when the people of Israel uh, were actually conquered by the Babylonians. And Judah and uh, Israel were conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians actually took uh, especially the leaders of Judah, and they took them off into captivity, right? And he says, this is actually your situation, Christian. Like, you are foreigners in a foreign land, and wherever you're living is not your home. And if you, if, if you for some reason, because of Christendom or whatever, started to think that, you were confused, about your identity. You are exiles and sojourners, and this whole time is the time of your sojourning, the time of your exiles. And so you are supposed to live as exiles. So if we want a, a model, that's where we look. 
And how do we have an encounter with people? Because if you go back to those texts, like in Jeremiah, which talks about, a le- sends a letter to the exiles about how they're supposed to live, it says this, you were taken there, but I sent you there, God says to them. I sent you there that you may bear witness. So you are here to bear witness to Jesus Christ in the time of your exile. How do we do it? How do we have a missionary encounter? Well, let me tell you four principles about the kind of people I think we need to become if we're going to have a missionary encounter in the secular age. The first is this. If we're going to have a missionary encounter in the secular age, we must live as a distinct people. In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. As sojourners and exiles, you are to live a distinct life. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. You are to be recognizably different. Uh, This really gets back to the concept of holiness. To be holy is to be distinct, to be set apart for service. In chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You are to be distinct, different, in all your conduct. Well, how is that to take place? In what way? Well, he says, overarchingly, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, most of the time, when we hear passions of the flesh, we think of like hedonistic pursuits, right? And that's certainly included. That's here in the letter. Chapter 4, verse 3, it says, the time has passed for living like Gentiles, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Like these hedonistic pursuits, you are to actually avoid them. You are to abstain from them. You're not to live like that. You know, in the first centuries, Christians were, you can read non-Christian writers talk about Christians, and you know what they found so, like, confusing, disruptive about these Christians in their lives? It said this. Uh, one, one, Christian, one non-Christian writer said this about them. It says, They withhold their beds, their bodies and their beds, but they give away their goods and their resources. In other words, they're sexually chaste, but they're extremely generous with their money. And they found that to be absolutely countercultural and just like shocking in that world. It's still shocking today. It's absolutely shocking today. Uh, Christian sexual ethics are absolutely shocking in every way, shape, and form. I had had a young couple that was sitting in my office one time, and they were wanting to get married, and they were having some tensions with their parents. And one of the tensions was over the fact that the parent was upset that they were not sleeping together. And he was like, you can't go get married without sleeping together, because how do you know that you're sexually compatible? And so you need to do this. And this person, this parent, actually grew up in the church and came from and would have claimed to be a Christian. The Christian mindset on sexuality is so distinct and so different that it will cause shock. And it will cause comprehensive shock, especially if, especially if we actually adopt its deep inner structures and workings. And here's what I mean by that. It is not shocking or incomprehensible, or it does not seem very plausible when we just pick and choose parts of that sexual ethic. 
and we don't see that it's rooted in the treatment of the body all around and the honoring of other people's bodies all around. We have to do that. It's also shocking for people to give away their money. You give away how much money? That's crazy. You tithe? 10%? Really? Uh, So... So these hedonistic pursuits, uh, that's something that they abstain from, but it's not just hedonistic pursuits. The passions of the flesh, and if you read Galatians, the passions of the flesh do not work themselves out in hedonistic pursuits. They work themselves out in legalism and religiosity. And so there, for instance, in Galatians 5, it says that the works of the flesh are idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. In other words... We, we are distinct, not just in how we use our bodies, but in also like how we treat people with whom we disagree. In our competitive spirits and natures, in our divisions, in our, in our envying others and what they have and what they don't have. These are ways in which we are absolutely distinct. Be holy, comprehensively holy, comprehensively distinct. Is the church distinct? We have to be distinct. Or, or are we identified with the values of some political party, some socioeconomic demographic, some race, some nation? See, the church, the Venn diagram between the church and any Any sector of society, whether that's a political party, a socioeconomic strata, uh, whether it's a nation or anything else, those that Venn diagram, if it is if it is too if it's too overlapping, and people assume that one for the other, then we've lost our distinctiveness, and we need to ask what ways in which have we been co-opted, baby. See, see, this is not assimilation. Peter says, "Be holy." But neither is it withdraw. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. You are among the Gentiles. This is making an impact. And that impact, when you do this, it's going to, it's going to make Christians like, stink, like blue cheese. Like blue cheese, stinky and old. No, not really. Not really stinking and old. But blue cheese, right? Have you ever been to a party where there's like really stinky old blue cheese? It, there's a twofold response. You ever notice that? There are people like me who flock to the kitchen island and will literally box you out as I'm eating like the blue cheese with the crackers. And then there are people like other members of my family that were nameless that run away from the kitchen, right? There's this twofold response. And here we see this twofold response. You see, look, that they speak against you as evildoers on the one hand, but on the other, they glorify your uh, good deeds and the, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's this like twofold response opposition and attraction, and we can expect that. And it's not attraction of those who are other believers or who are like you or whatever, it's, it's actually attraction of unbelievers. So we need to ask the question, like, is there, we should expect some opposition and we should expect some attraction if we're a distinct community. That's the first thing. 
live as a distinct community. The second thing is that we must be a live as a future-oriented people. Notice that everything that's done in verses 11 and 12 is done with a view toward this day of visitation. Now, what is the day of visitation? The day of visitation is the day that Christians proclaim that Jesus will come again. See, the proclamation of the church is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he will right all wrongs. He will wipe away every tear from every eye, and all the sad things will come untrue. Justice and righteousness will be established on this earth. And by the way, until then... We can, only long, we can only hope for proximate justice and proximate righteousness. I have a friend who works with um, abuse cases, and she's a lawyer. And she's like, there is no justice. And I said, there will be justice. There will be justice. We live as a future-oriented people who are looking forward to that day. That's why... Peter begins his letter in chapter 1, verse 3, and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Do you see how future-oriented this is? You have a living hope. It's being guarded now, but it is a salvation that is yet to be revealed. It is coming. So set your hope, verse 13 of chapter 1, fully on the grace that will be brought. When Leslie Newbigin was asked, what's the greatest challenge you face in Western culture? He said this, it's the disappearance of hope. We live in a hopeless world. And people are looking for hope in a hopeless world. But what we do with our hopelessness is we alleviate it through distraction. And let me, I understand. Because it is hard to keep going. And so we become masters of self-avoidance. Now, we have always been a people that, that are distracted. Um, you know, uh, play, I think it was Aristotle. Aristotle complained that people were uh, distracting themselves with their work and so that they weren't thinking about their souls, right? So this has always been the case. But now, it, it, we don't even choose distraction. It's just everywhere. And, and so it's, it's so hard to actually think about the emptiness and the void that so many people feel and the existential angst you know when, um, when pastors in the early church would describe their job, you know how they described it, what they did? They said, I prepare people to die. That's what I'm doing. I'm preparing people to die well and to die in Jesus. We don't really describe our jobs like that anymore, do we? We don't really talk about the reality of death because that would be too much, too heavy. I mean, I just think about the children's prayers even I grew up with. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. But if I die before I awake, I got to admit, praying that with my daughter is a little startling. If I die before I, she could die before she wakes, 
So we don't talk about the reality of death. But it used to be, whether you were 84 or 4, a pastor said, my job is to prepare you to die and to die well and to die in Jesus. But today, rather than talking about the future hope of eternal bliss that Jesus offers, this inheritance that's kept, Jesus is more a means to our best life now. He is another, even the greatest asset in our pursuit of happiness. And that's why we feel like, well, that's why when we try to communicate with our our friends who aren't convinced of Jesus, they think that we're just telling them to add another route to the pursuit of happiness. And if they don't feel like that's the best way to get there, then they'll reject it. But it's also why many of us when we don't feel like we are receiving or achieving or fulfilling our, our path to happiness, we wonder if we should leave Jesus. And that's one of the reasons I don't think we talk about death and loss and tragedy because it subverts our attention from the, fruit of, uh, from the pursuit of happiness and, and this idea that we could get our best life now. But listen... You know who doesn't think they have their best life now? Exiles. An exile who's been sent in a different country, a foreign land who's being ruled by an an oppressive situation, they never think that their best life is now. They're always looking for a future hope when they will be returned home. They are looking for another situation, a better situation, a deliverance. As sojourners and exiles, that's who we are. We are to keep our our focus on a future hope. And that's why actually that the existential angst that comes with pain and tragedy and loss and disappointment and death, um, these are actually our friend in today's distracted world. Because what they remind us is, is that it's a fool's errand to seek fulfillment in this life. Carver Yu said that the Western culture is a culture of technological optimism and literary despair. This is what he means by that, technological optimism. I mean, we have, we have cars that, like, I was in one the other day. They change lanes on their own. They drive themselves. I mean, pretty much, you know, we think that we could just lay down and life's going to happen for itself because we are going to solve all our problems technologically. I mean, this is kind of the technological optimism. We will, we will be taking vacations to the Holiday Inn on Mars, right? There's technological optimism on the one hand, but on the other hand, have you, have you read the literature? Joseph Conrad, The Heart of Darkness. Camus, the guest. Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. It's darkness and despair. Just, okay, maybe you're not a reader. Listen to the Avid brothers. Look between the, beneath the surface and what do you find? True sadness. True sadness. See, we have technological optimism, but there's literary despair because, because in the tragedy, in the loss, those things, they, they peek through and they remind us like, okay, what are we ultimately looking forward to? Listen, if you're in this room, here's what you're ultimately looking forward to. 
Here's what you can expect in life. You can expect a tremendous amount of loss. Loss of friends, loss of family, loss of your abilities, loss of job, loss of financial resources. And you can also expect a tremendous amount of decay. Your body will start to go. Pain will uh, seize your body. Your mental faculties will not work as well. Your eyes will not work as well. Your ears, your reasoning skills. And what about the world at large? Well, it seems like it's getting warmer. And, you know, the second law, law of thermodynamics, it is in effect. So ultimately, what we're looking forward to is a lot of decay, the ultimate decay. And after that, what do we have? Well, if there's no resurrection from the dead, there's separation, there's isolation, there's loneliness, and there's loss. There's eternal loss. That is what we all have to look forward to if there's no resurrection. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who raised Jesus from the dead and has given us a living hope, guarded and secure See, because of the resurrection of the dead, we don't have to deny the pain and the tragedy and the suffering. We can actually enter into it because we know that there is another situation that is coming. There's a future world and a better day. And it's called the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting where Jesus makes all things new and wipes every tear from every eye and justice reigns. And so Alan Noble, in a very important book that's, that he just wrote called um, Disruptive Witness, uh, Alan Noble says that when we compassionately and empathetically and honestly come alongside those who face tragedy, it is nothing less than a disruptive witness denying our culture's denial of death. Because we enter in and we say we don't have to push that aside. And then they're going to ask, why aren't you pushing this aside? Because we have hope. Well, why do you have hope? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 3, verse 15 says that this type of living, this, this distinctive future-oriented living will Cause people to ask questions. In your hearts, honor the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. See, your life, your future-oriented life, will your hope-filled life will provoke questions. People want to know, why do you live like this? Uh, my friend, he's ministered here. His name's Joe White. He used to be the RUF campus minister down at UCLA. Now he ministers in Florida. He tells a story about how when he was courting his wife and they were at different colleges, you know, he was dead set on seeing her as often as he could. So every weekend he would like do the trek, right? It's, and he would go like last minute, like his first time when he got out of class and he would go back as late as he could or whatever. And so he's coming back one time and in the midst of coming back, he just gets sick, and it was one of those stomach bugs that just totally, that hit him. And every five minutes, he's pulling over on the side of the road, and you know what he's doing. And he gets to this gas station, and he's just leaned over a, a, a garbage can. And there's this couple that's there, and they see him, and they see how, like, upset he is, and they see how sick he is, and they say, you know, you can't drive like this. Um, 
why don't we take you home? And he's like, I live an hour and a half up the road. I'm like way out of the way. I know my wife will drive my wife will drive your car and you can ride in mine and we'll 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 go back and we'll take your car home. So what no, I mean I can't I can't they're like you can't sit here at this you know this uh this uh gas station all night hurling over like a a garbage come on. And Joe's like can I ask you what possessed you to do this? Why you would do this? Why you would go out of your way like this? You know, when you live a distinctive life, when you live a different life, when you're willing to go out of your way for people, when you're living to like give up pleasures in this world because you actually know that there's eternal satisfaction and the one to come, people are going to ask questions. You know, it's interesting, Leslie Newbegin, when he was reading through, he, he asked the question, you know, he noticed that if you're reading through the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, Paul actually never commands anyone to evangelize. And he's like, why does he not do that? And then you read through the books of Acts, and people are evangelizing all the time, and the church is growing. And then he noticed this, that just about every time in the book of Acts, when someone stands up and they, uh, and they proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done, it's always because they've been asked to do so. Almost always. Even like Paul at the Areopagus, he was reasoning with people in the marketplace and they asked him to come speak there. Come speak on the resurrection. And then Nubican said, I know why Paul didn't command the people to go evangelize. Because he knew that by their lives, it would actually happen naturally. That they would be invited. Nubican says, if the if the church is living the true story, the evangelistic dialogue will be initiated not by the church, but by the one who senses the presence of a new reality and wants to inquire into its secret. Are we living a life that causes people to ask the question, what's the secret? Thirdly, I got to move quickly. We not only live as future-oriented people, we also must live as humbly bold people. Notice that there's this paradox in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Did you hear the paradox? Paul says, Be bold, have no fear. Don't fear. Don't fear what they're going to do to you. Don't fear your marginalization. Don't fear. I mean, and I get the fear. There's a lot of fear, right? If people find out I'm a Christian or if I speak up, am I going to lose this friendship? What's they're going to act like? Am I going to be more marginalized at work? What are they going to think of me? Am I going to be passed over for tenure? What's going to happen? I get the fear. He says, do not fear, but boldly, boldly speak. Now, we, we have... No need to fear. And we are certainly not victims. We are not victims. Because listen, you have the creator of the universe as your father. And your brother, he ascended on high and reigns on the throne. So we actually, we've got some people that are like close to us in some pretty powerful places. So we can never be victims. We are servants. We are servants. 
And we live not in fear, because the God who orchestrates all things, He is our God and He is on the throne, so we have no fear of them. We boldly proclaim what we believe, and yet there is also a humility. Yet do so with gentleness and respect. Gentleness. Man, what happened to gentleness? And gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But we have lost gentleness. That's a way to be distinct, to be gentle. Gentle means meekness. It's an unwillingness to establish one's own justice or to defend oneself or to attack an opponent. As one commentator said, it's committing one's cause to God, which means this. Being prepared to give a defense or a reason to anyone who asks for the hope that's within you, it's not about winning arguments. And it's not about gaining power. And it's not about vindicating yourself. And it's certainly not about asserting your own identity. Gentleness is a true form of humility because gentleness understands that we, even though Jesus is the truth, we still, we still need correcting ourselves. And in dialogue with people in the culture, we actually listen and in gentleness, we understand where they're coming from and what's going on. And we see the ways in which we have missed it. And we don't understand Jesus. Gentleness and respect. It says, honor everyone in chapter 2, verse 17, including the emperor. To honor someone, I think, means at least that we have to listen to what they say and cultivate a habit of listening and seeing where they are and seeing what their objections are and why they don't accept Christianity. It means entering into, entering into a dialogue where we try to actually put ourselves as best we can into their framework and see uh, what drives them, what's the rationale, what's the motive, because we realize that because they are image of God, they've been given minds. And they're actually thoughtful. And so we want, and they have emotions and hearts that have been broken and wounded. And we want to understand those things as we engage and we dialogue. But in our world of memes and bumper sticker Christianity, a fish eating Darwin, we're not actually like understanding people. Fish, a fish eating Darwin never convinced anyone. And a meme never convinced anyone. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, what do we do? Who are we talking to when we do that? Uh, you know, uh, has, has, let's be very honest, has it's a child and not a choice ever convinced anyone of the other side? That slogan. Now, I believe that the Christian perspective on personhood is that we protect life whenever it could possibly exist. And we promote life wherever and whenever it could possibly exist or potentially exist. That is the Christian view. But, but that doesn't actually like, you know, a bumper sticker doesn't actually understand or seek to understand like the objections that someone might have or how what their understanding of personhood is or or that like concern that they have about you know 
centuries of women's bodies being exploited and addressing that. Like if we don't do that, then, then we're not going to convince anyone and all we're doing is signaling our own identity and then all we're doing is this. It's kind of like we go, you know, we go out and we're saying like, this is who I am and I'm not promoting Jesus and his lordship. I'm promoting like my own self-identity. In other words, it's just another form of self-expressive individualism, which we see all around us, which is like, look at me, this is who I am. And I have had to become, I was super convicted about this week because I started to under, like, ask the question, like, am I trying to win people to Jesus? And am I promoting and proclaiming him? Or is this just another form of me saying, this is who I am and asserting my identity over against another's in a hostile world. Which is what we're doing like so much in the world. Look, the work of conviction and calling is the Holy Spirit's, but at different times and cultures, they present different barriers to hearing and comprehending the good news. And identifying, understanding, and overcoming these barriers with God's grace and wisdom has always been as Alan Noble says, the Christian's holy task. Whether our neighbors are devout Jews, Greeks, worshiping an unknown God, or contemporary Americans, we actually have to, to engage them with, with a humility that has a posture of gentleness and respect where we listen, we try to hear, we understand their arguments, we can articulate them back to them, we understand their hurts and their pains, we address those. We have to be, uh, live lives that are humbly bold, that declare the truth, but do so with gentleness and respect. Finally, we must be a loving people. We love one another. Peter says, finally, chapter 3, verse 8, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. That is love one another emotionally, with sympathy and a tender heart, and also with your minds, a humble mind and unity of mind. But we don't only love one another and have an uncharacteristic, uncommon community and how we love one another, this, this, this band of difference who are brought together under the Lordship of Christ. But we also love those outside. Look, verse 13, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. To bless someone else is to do another good. We must love the world and seek to bless the world. Because we can, do, we can promote and proclaim all we want, but if we don't do so from a posture of love, it's just, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And there's a type of love which is not love at all. Nubigan points out, there is, of course, a kind of loving that is selfish, merely the desire to have more members in the congregation. This kind of love is quickly recognized. But a congregation that has at its heart the joyful worship of the living God and a constantly renewed sense of the sheer grace and kindness of God will be a congregation from which true love flows out to the neighbors. A love that seeks their good whether or not they come to church. We have to be a church that is for the world. And this is why I'm so convinced that First Thursday is so important. And it's important that we do this to love our city. And we do it not at the end of the day to say, 
okay? Was this strategic enough? And how many people went to that and then came to the service afterwards? We do it just to love them. Otherwise, we're using them. And they'll know that. But we do it because we've been loved. Because God has reached out to us in love. And Jesus is the model. Chapter 2, verse 21, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Why'd you do this? Why are you putting me in your car and taking me back to the University of Florida? The guy responded, you'll never believe, but I mean, one, because I can and you're here, but because God went way out of his way to come to earth to inconvenience himself to the greatest degree possible by taking on my sin and to return me home. And that's why I'm taking you home. And my friend Joe said, okay, I'll take that ride. I'll take that ride. It was when we were sinners that Christ died for us. It was when we were weak and helpless that Christ came to us. And he says that we are beloved. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. See, we are those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, and now we are God's people. Once we have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And it's because of that mercy, that love, that grace, that we go out and graciously, graciously witness to Jesus Christ to others. That's the community that we have to be if we're ever going to have a missionary encounter with this world who Jesus loves to death and to life. Amen.